Hi, welcome to Fraud Talk. I'm Andy McNeil, the Director of Research here at the ACFE, and today we're joined by Tom Fox, the Compliance Evangelist. Welcome, Tom. We're really excited to have you here on the podcast. We appreciate you joining us. I'd like to start with a little bit about your background. Can you tell us about your journey to becoming the compliance evangelist and kind of what you do in that role? Sure. Thanks. And uh, really privileged uh, to be here today. I think as with many people in the compliance profession, I stumbled into this. I am a recovering trial lawyer. And from that experience, I went into the in-house legal world and I did transactional work, lived abroad and did deals all over the world. And that allowed me to become a general counsel at a company who, in 2007, had the largest uh, fine for violations of the FCPA in the history of the world ever. The fine was $27 million. That fine no longer even makes the top 20. At any rate, that company was under a monitorship. Uh, we had Department of Justice oversight, robust monitorship, and I was part of the new implementation team that came on board after everything had been settled to design, create, and implement a best practices compliance program. And that's my was my first experience with compliance. And from that, I learned literally how do you do all of those things with government oversight, with a monitor. My company was sold, and uh, that job uh, ended up going away. And so uh, I decided what I really wanted to do with my life was uh, race bicycles. So uh, this was uh, before Lance Armstrong's fall from grace. And we're, as we're sitting here in Austin, it's appropriate to talk about Lance. And he was a Texan, and I'm a Texan. So uh, I went off on this great adventure to race bicycles, and I had great fun doing it until uh, on a training ride. Uh, One day I was uh, taken out by a Hummer, so that ended my cycling career. And so I was uh, going to have to go back to work. And after a period of convalescence, and I got on my walker and toddled into my office at home, I had to decide what I was going to do. And I decided that at this point, which was 2010, there were very few lawyers in private practice who did the nuts and bolts work of compliance, as I had done in my previous corporate position. Most lawyers either did investigations or negotiated with the government, and I wanted to focus on how do you design, create, and implement a best practice compliance program. So I started doing that. I had no work. I had no clients, uh, but I did have time. In fact, that was the only thing I had was time because I'd been working out four to six hours a day. So I started exploring the world of social media. I started blogging. Later, that led to podcasting. I tweeted. I linked in. And I developed a literally worldwide compliance practice from my office simply because I had to. The only time I left my house was to go to physical therapy for my injuries. Uh, so I couldn't, couldn't do this, couldn't go meet anyone, couldn't have lunch with anyone, couldn't go to a conference, couldn't go speak anywhere. So I uh, really became an uh, aficionado of uh, social media and the power of social media quite early. Uh, as I said, the blogging uh, led to podcasting and later decided that what I really wanted to do was bring the good news of compliance to the world. And so that's why I took the name Compliance Evangelist, because evangelism in Greek means uh, the good news. So uh, I try to talk, write, think, podcast, write books all about compliance and how compliance can really help your company not only do business more ethically, but also much more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. 
And you certainly have been prolific with your work as the evangelist, as you mentioned, all the podcasts, all the blog posts. You know, I've, I've been familiar with your name for a few years now just because I keep coming across all of your content that's out there, which has been really impressive. But today we wanted to focus on one particular angle that you've undertaken recently. That's your new book, The Compliance Handbook. With all of the different avenues of publication that you just mentioned, how did you get the idea for this specific book and what was the process for you for putting that together? In 2000 and 16, at the end of 2016, I had a large contract that ended. So in 2017, I was once again thinking about what I wanted to do. And one thing I've wanted to do for many years was write the definitive compliance handbook. Up until that point, I'd written 15 books about compliance, business ethics, and leadership. And so I decided to dedicate 2017 to to writing at least Tom's version of the compliance handbook. And the format I used, though, I'd really decided to incorporate all of the social media tools I used. So I would start with a chapter, and I decided to break each chapter down into a daily exercise. So one thing you could do that day to enhance your compliance program at little or no cost, and with three key takeaways for each day. So I started that, but then I used that daily write-up to, which went into a chapter to become a daily podcast. So literally, I did a podcast every day in 2017 on how to design, create, and implement a compliance program. And so it uh, started off with 31 days to a more effective compliance program. And then I just went through each chapter of the book, boards of directors, human resources, third parties, investigations, internal controls, innovations in compliance, codes, conducts, written procedures, mergers and acquisitions, uh, all of those topics. I have 12 chapters in the book, very biblical. The opening chapter is 31 days to a more effective compliance program. The final chapter is operationalizing your compliance program. And in between, it generally follows the 10 hallmarks of an effective compliance program with the Department of Justice and SEC talked about in their 2012 guidance. It was really a process utilizing all the tools of social media that I had developed, but each part was a part of the editing process for me. And I was able to get out a lot of information. And by putting the information out there in the podcast format, it really helped me think through what I was doing because I was having to articulate it as you and I are. But also I got a lot of comments and feedback from people that I was able to incorporate into the book as I revised the blog posts, then chapters, then book in the editing process going forward. I really love sort of the 21st century version of publishing that you undertook. It's very different than I think, you know, predecessors for so many manuscripts, this real-time feedback, this use of social media, and the result is you can dive in and apply things very, very easily based on your knowledge and even the feedback that you received from the people that you interacted with during the process. It's really, really neat. Well, it's interesting because that was not what I had intended when I started because actually my model was Charles Dickens. And his books he released in magazine form or article forms in magazines. And you name any of the Charles Dickens books that we all may have uh, read in high school, and they were in serial form. And that was sort of my vision, but it became, as you said, a feedback mechanism and a feedback loop because people would uh, give me input. They would give me insights. People would comment. I I ended up interviewing a fair number of people for the book. Uh, Those became podcasts as well. Uh, We were talking a little bit earlier about some serial type podcasts That's actually where I stumbled on this, where I would interview one or two people for one month's topic, uh, internal controls, investigations, human resources, third parties, innovation, wide variety of topics. But those interviews, which became podcast productions, also became part of the book as well. 
So let's talk a little bit about some of the areas that you get into in the book. Specifically, I know you talk about a lot of well-known cases of bribery, corruption, FCPA violations. Can you talk a little bit about some of the red flags or common characteristics of those cases that you get into and what we as anti-fraud professionals can really learn from those? In the FCPA world, still the largest and highest and greatest risk is around third parties. Uh, 95% of all FCPA cases are around third parties or at least involve third parties in some way. So that means you need to have your highest risk management strategy and tactics around third parties, whether those third parties be commission sales agents. Uh, We just had uh, a case or some information around distributors, which is another area where there's uh, possibilities for financial abuse, for fraud, uh, which could lead to a corruption violation. So however you sell, though, because you have to figure out, you have to follow the money. And that's the great thing about what you guys do at the ACFE as fraud examiners is follow the money. It's the same concept in the FCPA world because someone has to get a pot of money together big enough to pay a bribe. So how do they do it? Uh, If it's a commission sales agent, it could be part of their commission. If it's a distributor, it could be their discount. If it's uh, employees are your primary sales model, well, what happens if everyone in your foreign business unit is turning in false expenses to create a pot of money to pay a bribe? It could be by stuffing a channel and selling through distributors uh, over multiple quarters, all with uplifts to create a uh, pot of money to pay a bribe. But it's following that money to understand where the money that paid the bribe came from. That really does speak to what, as anti-fraud professionals, we are experienced and what our expertise lies in. Can you talk a little bit about what people outside of our area of expertise can do? HR, for example, or maybe board of directors, what's their role in fighting these types of schemes? Sure. It's really interesting that you you phrase it that way in terms of what are the role of other corporate disciplines or parts of an organization such as a board of directors to fight fraud. How about if I flip that to say, how do you operationalize compliance? You operationalize compliance by pushing it down to as close as you can to the front lines. So for instance, HR is a perfect example. How can HR help you fight fraud or be more compliant doing the things HR already does? So in a pre-employment screening, obviously you're going to do some level of due diligence if that person is high enough up in your potential organization or they may go into a high-risk role. But that's just the screening. What about in your pre-employment interview? Do you just have a few words about the values of your company, the integrity your company hopes to do business with, and that compliance is very important? If you hire that person when they are onboarded, do you have HR say a few more words? HR does routine training. Why not ask HR to have 30 to 90 seconds of training appended onto their regular training about uh, values of the corporation? And then, obviously, with a um, annual review, you could have a few words about compliance. If your company pays a discretionary bonus at the end of the year, part of that could be around did they do business ethically and in compliance. Each one of those steps, what corporate function has the most touch points with employees? Generally, it's HR. And if you ask HR to do any of those things that I just detailed, I don't think it's going to be burdensome. I don't think it's going to add cost. Yet you have re-emphasized in a manner not from compliance, how important ethics and compliance is in your organization. Conversely, the board of directors also has a very significant role. The board of directors really has to set the tone. They have to set the lead. Not only have they been trained on things like the FCPA, the compliance program, or even anti-fraud protection, but do they bring it up? When they meet with senior executives, do they say a few words about how important that is? And then has the board tested? When was the last time the board, your board, 
ask the head of uh, your internal audit to give you the most recent anti-fraud findings or the most recent fraud report. If it's been uh, a year, well, that's about the tail end of what time period you should wait if it's been more than a year. That's something that the board needs to occasionally test. They don't need to come in and tell you as head of internal audit what to do, but they do need to make sure you're doing your job. It's about the process, not the outcomes. So taking that process perspective, it sounds like you're advocating a really integrated approach, right? With the HR integrating little bits of ethics and compliance into all of their existing processes and and touch points with the staff as opposed to a dedicated, here's how we're doing anti-corruption training or FCPA training or compliance training. We want to make sure that that touch point on ethical values of the organization are integrated throughout all of their processes. Is that something that you're seeing more organizations do? Or is it something that you just see as a best practice that you're hopeful more organizations will adopt? So I certainly see this as a best practice, but in places like the FCPA world, it's actually much easier now because the regulators have said that's what you should do. And in the FCPA world, in February of 2017, the Department of Justice released a document called the Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, which was their internal document through which they evaluated compliance programs for companies that were under FCPA and investigation. And it was clear from that document what the Department of Justice expected was operationalization of your compliance program, literally pushing compliance in the very DNA and fabric of your organization at every touch point possible. It's not limited to compliance and legal, obviously. It's not limited to internal audit. It's not limited to HR. It's every corporate function has a role in compliance. You or I as the compliance officer's job is to figure out how best to operationalize and work with those corporate functions to integrate it, as you said. One of the things you talk about that I think really sort of underscores this is the concept of a 360 degree approach to communications within a company. What is that? Can you explain that concept a little bit and then how that contributes to a culture of compliance? Certainly. And and I have to uh, say, I purloined this from Lewis Sapperman. He has a a former CCO of a multinational company, and he really advocated and continues to advocate that concept. I'd always thought as communications linear up, down, you and I, but the 360 degree approach is literally Every touch point, every communication, every interaction is a continued way for you to express the values of your organization. I come from the energy space, and in the energy space, safety is very important. Every meeting is led with a safety moment. The board of directors leads with safety moments down to if three people get together, you have to have a safety moment. That's just the rules. And it's designed to get people to think about safety. You can do that with values. You can do that with ethics. You can do that with integrity. You can do that with compliance. So you can have your senior leadership say just a few words about that. But a 360-degree way of communication allows you to model your values as well. Did you spend too much on an expense account dinner? Did you not turn in appropriate receipts? Did you do all of the things that you were supposed to? Uh, The best example I I personally ever observed was uh, in my last corporate position, the CEO and I were in China to negotiate a deal. And on the way back to the airport, uh, when we were leaving the country, we got pulled over by the police. And it was pretty clear to me they wanted some cash. They couldn't speak English. Our driver couldn't speak English, and we couldn't speak Chinese. He he was adamant. He said, we're not paying. We are not paying a cent. Now, no one pulled a gun on us. No one threatened us. No one made a move that I interpreted as a physical threat, that my safety was in danger. And he said, we're going to sit here. And literally, we sat there for two hours on the side of the road till uh, they let us go. 
It was a very powerful example, uh, but he just said, I don't know if it was because we were under a deferred prosecution agreement. I don't know if it was because he was so mad that it happened. I don't know if he just said, these are our values and we're going to stick to our guns. But it was a very powerful message. And uh, those sorts of things are modeling compliance, values, and ethics. But the, the last thing about the 360-degree view is I had hoped and thought that if you created a culture a speak-up culture where people were not afraid to raise questions or raise their hand and raise issues. And then, of course, we had Me Too, which I thought really drove that message home. But a 360-degree view of communications allows literally communications uh, at all times. And it fosters a culture where people, they don't even view it as raising their hand. They view it as just having ongoing communication with a compliance officer, with a senior executive, or with a superior. And it really uh, adds to and leads to a more efficient and well-run organization because you're having constant feedback. And when you can have that because you've created an environment where people are not willing to raise their hand, they're willing to just say, I think we can do it this way. I think we can do it better. Or we've got a problem I don't understand. When you can create that sort of culture, I think that's when people really respond. It's probably a lot less of a proactive decision for people to raise their hand in that type of environment. If they're already used to having those, what in some organizations might be considered a tough conversation, it's just an ongoing dialogue. I can see that being really powerful and sort of emphasizing that culture. Communication is a huge component. Another one that we talk about a lot here at the ACFE and I know in the ethics and compliance space as well is training and raising awareness among staff. And the question we often get asked is, well, at the end of the day, can you actually teach ethics? Is that something that's possible? You know, we talk about what you're doing internally to help create that culture, but what if you've got somebody that's on the fence? Is that something that you can actually train somebody in? What's your take on that? It's interesting that you would phrase it that way, and I guess my first response would be there are always going to be people who, unfortunately, are going to cheat on their expense account. They're going to do business unethically. They're going to see perverse incentives in their compensation, which would drive them to make decisions which could well be illegal conduct. There's a part of every compliance program, or there are three parts rather, prevent, detect, and remediate. And sometimes you need that detect. And that's where people in internal audit, that's where a speak-up culture can step in and detect that sort of behavior because having those detect mechanisms, having internal controls that will pick that up, can often get that person to stop and think, well, even if I did it, am am I going to get caught? There's that part of it, which is a robust detect component as well. But by having the continuing conversations around our values, around values, around ethics, around integrity, and driving home that, overlaid with some of the other things we've talked about, which is hopefully we'll hire people that will engage in ethical behavior and ethical decision-making, that that's all part of it as well. So it's all integrated together. And if you really move on all of these fronts forward, I think you can do business more ethically. And if I can just throw in something that I learned from the most recent report to the nations, because I had really not fully appreciated that the red flags or indicia of someone who would engage in bribery and corruption are, I don't want to say standard, but routine red flags that you guys see in fraud. And so that that is something we do not talk about at all in the anti-corruption world. We don't talk about individual employees' red flags. And so those sorts of behaviors, I hope, are, I'm going to certainly try to talk about those and hope I can get to your people to talk to my people uh, about that so that they may understand there's another level of uh, not necessarily risk, but certainly uh, conditions which might exist that they were not aware of. Absolutely. I think that human element where you can 
have those behavioral indicators certainly can inform a lot of pieces of different compliance and ethics programs. And understanding you're not necessarily profiling, but just the regular awareness as you're building these programs of that human side of what fraud and corruption and these types of violations can look like can be really, really helpful, I think. Right. If you have a new Jaguar, I I hope you got a big bonus at the end of the year. Something to keep an eye out for. Yes. So my final question for you today is kind of what what do you see as the compliance evangelist on the horizon for corporate compliance and ethics? Where are you seeing organizations targeting their initiatives and resources? And and where do you see uh, this area going? I see this area going. It may be similar to what you guys are seeing, seeing, but it's technology enabled that the technology we have now, it enables compliance officers, it enables internal auditors, it enables financial people, it enables the legal department to access the information that's within their company. And one of the greatest difficulties I saw starting literally in 2007 was everything was siloed. The information's there, the data's there for the compliance officer. And and I say this as one who came from a general counsel position. So I'm a lawyer by training. Uh, I'm not a numbers guy. I'm not an analytics guy. Uh, You can give me all the analytics and and I might or might not be able to interpret them. So the being able to interpret those numbers, but to look at things in a much more holistic approach. Uh, I have one colleague who described it as seeing patterns in raked leaves, but it's uh, artificial intelligence. It is algorithms. There are some fabulous new tools that allow compliance officers or others to cut through the various silos to see those patterns. And what may appear as a series of not unfortunate events, but disparate events uh, that might have a pattern. I, I challenge a compliance officer, do you have visibility into each step in your sales cycle? And they say, well, of course we do. I said, okay, let's start with your marketing. Do you have visibility into marketing spend? Do you have visibility into gift entertainment and travel spend? Let's just say it's an RFQ. A request for quote quote comes from a state-owned enterprise, such as a national company or from a foreign government. Do you have visibility into the response to that RFP? Well, Well, why would we? Well, it's because it's all part of the sales process. Then after a RFP is returned, do you have process into the negotiating? process for the compensation rates. Uh, If you don't, does your company have a process for review of discounts given to customers? Higher the discount, the higher it should go up. Do you have a contract management system? Do you have visibility into the contract management system? After the contract signed, do you have visibility into any rebates that suddenly appear? Uh, And then do you have visibility into GTE spend on uh, corporate clients, whether they be employees of state-owned enterprises or foreign officials? Do you have visibility into their travel uh, that you may bring them to the United States for a viewing? Each one of those points is a part of or could be a part of a bribe or corruption under the FCPA. And compliance may have insight or oversight into GTE spend, but they generally don't have oversight into contract discounting. I was going to ask, how often do you get a yes to all of those different areas from a single company? It would be probably pretty impressive if you did. But all of those points I've just discussed are embedded somewhere in the company's data. That's where I see artificial intelligence, but it's it has to be overlaid with a human component. 
It doesn't matter how much analysis you give and deliver a report. You have to have someone to look and interpret that. And so the people who do internal audits, their jobs are going to be, I think, more efficient. And the same with compliance. Professionals are not going away. We'll just be able to access more information. And that's what's going to lead to greater business efficiency. Because all of those points I named are incredibly inefficient if you can't see where they are all moving, which is to make a sale. And so the best example I can point you to is Microsoft did an analysis of their GTE spend for their government contracts. And what they were trying to do was find a range that people spent on potential customers that either led or didn't lead to a sale. So that when a point was reached, it became clear from the data that a sale was not going to be closed and they could move on to the next one. That's exactly the type of business efficiency analysis that a compliance officer would do for a completely different reason. So when you can marry those two together, I think that is what is going to drive compliance going forward because that's a type of analysis that makes companies run more efficiently and at the end of the day more profitably. Tom, thank you for all the insights you shared with us today. There's more great insights in your book, The Compliance Handbook, and uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks for stopping by the ACFE. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you to all of you listening. You can find all our Fraud Talk episodes on iTunes, and be sure to check out the episode details at acfe.com slash podcast. This is Andy McNeil, and we will talk to you again next month.